Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Iranian president has warned that anyone responsible for the recent tragic occurrence bombings would be identified and punished. Russia and Ukraine have carried out the largest prisoner exchange so far. Is it an indicator for a future peace talk? And China has cautioned against decoupling and de-risking as the IMF predicts a potential 7% reduction in global GDP. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. The Iranian government has declared Thursday a day of national mourning after about 100 people were killed in two explosions near the burial site of Iran's assassinated general Qasem Soleimani. The blast occurred as people gathered at a cemetery to mark the fourth anniversary of Soleimani's death in a U.S. drone strike. The cause of the blast is still under investigation. Iranian president has warned that those behind the deadly blast will be identified and punished. Aksahaki Vani has more. The Tasnim news agency reported the first explosion went off 700 meters away from uh, Soleimani's tomb. Uh, shortly after, there was a second blast about one kilometer away from uh, the tomb. According to state-run Isna news agency, Kerman's mayor said the explosions took place uh, about 10 minutes apart. Kerman's deputy governor described the blasts as terror attacks but offered no evidence to uh, support the claim. Um, officials say a military airplane has been dispatched to Kerman to transport the injured to Tehran and uh, other cities to receive uh, medical treatment. The country's prosecutor general and the judiciary head have urged the security forces to start their investigations and find those behind the explosions. The government issued a statement and declared Thursday a public day of mourning for those killed uh, in the explosion. That was Aksa Kevani reporting. For more analysis, let's have Dr. Wang Jing, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Thanks for joining us, Professor Wang. My pleasure. First of all, can you give us a brief historical background on the tensions between Iran and the United States, especially in the aftermath of the 2020 drone strike that killed Commander Soleimani? The bilateral relations between the uh, United States and Iran now came uh, uh, came into the kind of the deadlock after uh, the attack by the United States against uh, Soleimani in uh, early 2020. Because Soleimani, on the one hand, he was uh, perceived by Iranian people as the supreme hero, uh, given that Soleimani's very reputation in the Middle East and also his reputation of resisting. Uh, ISIS and other regional uh, hostile groups of Iran in the Middle East. So actually, uh, Soleimani has a great influence in, uh, in, in inside Iran society. That is why the killing by the United States against Soleimani angered a lot of Iranians. And on the other hand, Soleimani's uh, death uh, led to the kind of the hostilities of the Iranian sentiment, social sentiment against the United States. Uh, many of the Iranians, uh, official uh, and the public media, claimed that Iran should revenge, should retaliate immediately and strongly against uh, the United States military actions against the Soleimani inside in, in Iraq. So that is why the tension between the two states grow. But on the other hand, we have to know that uh, tension are not everything, and uh, and the communication, the connections between the two states. Even on the sometimes uh, under the very uh, underground channel, mm-hmm. still continues. And uh, we know that uh, Iran, United States, they mediate. They, they were mediated by the third party, especially by the European Union and Qatar. Uh, continue to uh, to start their ne- nuclear negotiation after 2000, uh, after 2020, uh, until the August 2022. And uh, we know that uh, the negotiations are there, and also the exchange of detainees and hostages by the uh, to, by each other 
also uh, reached the very successful agreement, although this is a very secret agreement, uh, were reached the last year. So there were a lot of the progress between uh, uh, BRICS rules between the two sides. But of course, the, there were there were no uh, formal diplomatic relations between the two sides. There were the, uh, no formal and the public open uh, communication channel between the two countries. And the influence of the negative influence of the death of Soleimani uh, is still there and it continues until today. Then what's your overview of the recent blasts in Iran and the significance of the ceremony that was targeted? This is a very, uh, I think this is a very important uh, historic moment because now we know that this, this terrorist attack led to uh, nearly 100 uh, Iranian people deaths and also mm-hmm. uh, uh, to nearly 200 or 300 people injured. Uh, we know that it is, it is now the biggest, uh, the biggest and the most serious terrorist attacks uh, ever since 1979 uh, when Iran, Iran's Islamic revolution uh, succeeded. So it is very, very major uh, public, political, and security event inside Iran that attracts a lot of attention. Of course, there were a lot of discussions about who uh, are who are the real murderer and who implemented and who uh, organized this kind of the terrorist attacks. And there were still a lot of things that need to be further explored uh, by the Iranian security intelligence agencies. But I think with time goes by, a lot of more, with more information released, I think the, the case will become more clear. But uh, it is very early. It is too early to judge uh, who really uh, launched this terrorist attack. It is a tragedy. No matter no matter who launched this kind of a tragedy, uh, this kind of attack, it is a tragedy, a disaster for the people in this parade. And it is a challenge it's very, yes. very, uh, that would provoke the anger and the dissatisfaction of Iranian people there. Indeed, as you said, no one has claimed responsibility for the blasts yet, and the United States rejected any suggestion that E or its ally Israel was behind these explosions. So in the absence of claim of responsibility, what are the potential motivations behind the attacks on the ceremony based on your observation and study? I think this terrorist attack uh, tries to uh, distance the, the, the Iranian people and the Iran's government because it is a terrorist attack against the people uh, uh, parade uh, for the death of Soleimani's uh, fourth anniversary and uh, it is very given that Soleimani was the important uh, leader in, not only inside Iran's revolutionary guards uh, but also it, he was understood as a hero uh, of Iran's government so that is why this, this kind of explosion uh, to actually, two explosions, more precisely, uh, that uh, try to challenge the unity between the Iranian people and the government. But right now, that uh, given a lot, given that a lot of details are still unknown, I mean that uh, the the why who really launched this attack, and uh, without the, any information about the the the, the 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 actor launching this attack, we are not able to very precisely and clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to to claim the possible motivations and behind this kind of attacks, but no matter what happened, I think it is a very major challenge to to, Iran, to Iranians' uh, own political unity as well as their national safety. Uh, so that is why Iran's security and intelligence agencies they should do more to find more information and truth behind this time, kind of attack, and uh, hope that uh, uh, more information would be released in the future. Professor Iran denounced the assassination as a state terrorism and vowed revenge. How has Iran historically responded to similar attacks and what might be expected in terms of retaliation? I think the, the types of retaliation of Iran uh, is, are largely dependent, uh, dependent upon uh, who really launched these strikes. Because if Iran really finds enough information and enough proof uh, that, for example, United States or Israel are behind this kind of attacks, although they have, they, they both have already claimed, uh, they rejected this kind of a claim. But if they, Iran really find out, okay, now it is the Israeli intelligence security agencies, they launched this attack, I think they will organize the, the military uh, actions 
although some of the military actions are very limited and uh, small-scale military actions against the Israeli targets in the region. Uh, but uh, if, if, I mean, if this, they find out that uh, the, uh, it was other terrorist groups, for example, the ISIS branches mm-hmm. inside Iran, uh, or uh, some other uh, uh, the, the major rebels, such as people's uh, Mujahideen of Iran, a very, very old style uh, Iran's uh, uh, rebel groups, Inside and outside Iran, I think Iran's uh, security and, and the intelligence agencies they will try to arrest uh, more suspects and also try to destroy the networks of these terrorist uh, 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 groups inside Iran. So they will they will do the things depend upon who really uh, start and who really launch these strikes. But uh, given that a lot of information are still unknown, it is very difficult to judge what Iran will do. But I think Iran, uh, no matter who really launched it, and uh, no matter what will happen in the future, Iran will uh, retaliate through the very rational and the restrained manner, rather than trying to escalate the tension and uh, try to promote more uncertainties and more crisis in this region. I think Iran will do it very rationally, uh, rational way and the restrained way, and try to. Uh, try to gain their own interests and meet the demands of their own uh, people uh, within a very, very uh, rational scale. Mm. Then how are neighboring countries like Iraq and Yemen responding to the incident? What role do regional players such as Hezbollah play in the aftermath of this attack? Uh, I think the Iran, as you you say, that Iran has a lot of... uh, uh, regional allies, and some of the allies are the states, for example, the Syria government, and some of the other allies are the regional actors, such as the Hezbollah in Lebanon, such as the Hashd al-Shaabi, I mean, the People's Mobilization Units uh, inside Iraq, and, uh, for example, such, such as the Hamas and Jihad in the Gaza Strip. Uh, they will, of course, uh, express their strong unity with Iran and send their uh, send their uh, there are very strong uh, criticisms, uh, sentiments against the, the, the possible actors behind these attacks. Uh, they will show their unity with Iran on the one hand. And the, on the other hand, I think once Iran really uh, as certain who are the really murderers and who, really the, who are really the actors now behind these attacks, uh, if Iran wants to retaliate, these, kind of, these groups will try their best to coordinate uh, with Iran to launch the, the attacks against the possible uh, actors behind this, these attacks. Uh, but no matter what happens, I think as, as we have to, as we also need to stress again that Iran will do their retaliation, launch their retaliation through a very rational and restrained restraint way, rather than try to escalate the tension as mm-hmm. the will of other allies in this region. So I think Iran's uh, retaliation will be limited. And also Iran's allies in this region, Hezbollah, I mean, the Popular People's Mobilization Units, and also other original allies will also uh, try to uh, try to do their best to help Iran, but rather than the, the escal- escal- tension and the crisis in the region at their own will. So mm-hmm. I think in the future we'll, we will know who are really the murder and what would happen next. Thanks, Dr. Wang, for your time and insights. That's Dr. Wang Jing, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Ukraine and Russia have announced their first exchange of prisoners of war in nearly five months, with more than 200 freed by each side. Both sides said the swap came after a complex negotiation involving mediation by the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. Russia's defense ministry said 248 military personnel had been handed over by Ukraine. Kiev said it had brought home 230 people, including 220. 24 soldiers and six civilians. For this and more on Russia-Ukraine conflict, I earlier talked with Dr. Cui Hongjian, professor with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Professor, both Russia and Ukraine have been engaged in intense fighting around the new year. What prompted the recent prisoner exchange as the most extensive since the onset of the conflict? Actually, you know, recently, uh, especially the Ukraine and the Russia, they exchanged, let's say, uh, very tensive, I mean, uh, fighting 
but they also people are talking that uh, are talking about the possibility for both sides to exchange the prisoners. Uh, also, in the, under the mediation from some um, Middle Eastern countries, now uh, these two countries uh, exchange the prisoners. I think it shows that to, uh, even on one side, that uh, Ukraine and uh, Russia they are still uh, to take use of a military force as a major uh, instrument to deal with the contradiction and also the disagreement. But still, I think that. Uh, both sides try to uh, have some uh, engagement, especially on the issue of the uh, prisoners. So I don't think that uh, it would be uh, so, I think, a positive uh, message for both sides. But uh, because also, you know, it, it, it's from the uh, requirement from both sides, because once there are some more exchange uh, of uh, prisoners, and it will give some uh, uh, I think, uh, messages to both two sides, especially for Ukraine and for Russia, they need to have some more favorable environment for domestic politics. I think this uh, exchange uh, will give some uh, uh, message uh, uh, on this regard. Could you please elaborate more on this? How would you assess the potential impact of the swap on the ongoing hostilities between the two sides? Do you consider it a positive indicator for future peace negotiations? Actually, you know, it's not the first time for both sides to exchange uh, prisoners. And of course, now this time is the biggest one. Uh, even uh, before, uh, international community had some uh, expectation that uh, this exchange will give some more opportunity for uh, direct engagement between uh, China, between Ukraine and Russia. And then uh, this kind of uh, engagement could uh, help the construction or building of the uh, mutual uh, trust. And then uh, perhaps they will provide some more positive conditions for director negotiation, even in the direction of uh, peace negotiation. But uh, as we know so far, even both sides have some uh, uh, engagement like uh, exchanging prisoners, but uh, still both sides has a so big gap on the uh, political goals. So I think, yes, the exchange and also engagement could be a very important uh, you know, part of this uh, engagement. But still, uh, I think they are, they are still uh, leading a lot of uh, conditions for a peace negotiation between Russia and Ukraine. Professor, earlier you mentioned mediation from other countries. UAE Ministry of Foreign Affairs has highlighted the strong friendly relations with both Russia and Ukraine in its statement. How did the UAE contribute to the success of the recent prisoner exchange? What role does it play? This time, like uh, some time uh, earlier, uh, both uh, Russia and Ukraine uh, declare that uh, it's um, UAE to help this exchange. Also, you know, it's not the first time for UAE do something uh, to help the mediation and to help the engagement between Russia and Ukraine. And even not only UAE and also Saudi Arabia, some other Middle Eastern countries, they did a lot of uh, work to help the exchange of uh, prisoners for Ukraine and Russia. I think, yes, there are some um, uh, existing conditions for Middle Eastern country to do something uh, to help the situation. Uh, as we know, uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia, they do have a, uh, you know, a, a good relations with Russia and Ukraine, respectively, and also uh, on geopolitical uh, frame the uh, Middle East is far away from uh, Ukraine and uh, Russia, and uh, they do have some um, cooperation in trade, engage and uh, energy with the countries. So I think it gives some, you know, the uh, advantages for these countries to help the situation. But of course, I think the uh, stand and also the policy for of uh, Middle East countries also uh, very important conditions for them to play a role to you know uh, get engagement get cooperation 
with Ukraine and Russia at the same time. Professor, we see more and more countries such as the UAE, Saudi Arabia, China, and Turkey playing active role in regional disputes, while major players like the United States and European Union seem deeply entangled in these conflicts. How do you perceive this trend, and what implications does this phenomenon carry? Certainly, there are very, uh, I mean, clear comparisons some countries uh, like uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia uh, try to play a more active role to help the situation and to push forward the conflict between Ukraine and Russia towards a political settlement. On the other side, United States or some other Western countries, they just uh, take one side, I mean, to support so-called defending uh, Western uh, countries by support Ukraine. So I think not only because of the uh, geographic position to decide the difference of the position between uh, Western countries and other non-Western countries. And I do think that uh, another very important reason is United States and some European countries, they do have their own myth of the so-called uh, to defend the Western democracy and some other, but of course, I think to have a geopolitical competition and try to uh, find out more advantages to uh, deal with the so-called Russian uh, threats, I think it's a very, very uh, important uh, mindset uh, for Western countries. So I think that, uh, of course, once um, uh, Western countries, including the United States, uh, could change the mindset and to change the, the Cold War uh, thinking, especially the zero-sum game thinking. I think it, it will be, uh, it will help them to change their uh, uh, views on the conflict, and uh, perhaps they can also become a more constructive uh, uh, force to help the whole situation. Professor, back to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. According to a report from Russian Today, Lithuanian Prime Minister stated that 2024 would be a difficult year for Ukraine. She mentioned that they had been overly optimistic about Ukraine's performances in the conflict earlier and had hoped Ukraine could defend the so-called Western values with military assistance and support, but this didn't materialize. Experts believe such a narrative is shared by many within the Western alliance. What's your take? How do you perceive this viewpoint? Yes, recently we can find out the, there has been some uh, uh, a change uh, within uh, some European countries, uh, and even within uh, United States. I think they try to uh, recognize the, the reality that Russia could not be defeated in short time, even Western countries impose the sanctions and also uh, try to provide some more support and uh, also uh, military weapons to Ukraine. But I think the uh, Russian side showed a lot of uh, resilience under the sanctions and also the uh, pressures from Western countries. I think it's out of the uh, it is out of the expectation of the Western countries. Another, I think, a very important reason is now it's just a, some few Western countries that do have a clear and uh, you know uh, a clear attitude towards uh, Russia, and uh, most of the uh, member of the international community uh, they don't want to take a side, take the side between Ukraine and Russia or between Russia and the Western countries. They try to have their own understanding and their own uh, position on this uh, conflict. I think it gives uh, also a lot of, uh, you know, dissatisfaction for Western countries. So not only because of the physical reason and also because of the, you know, spiritual reason. I think that now uh, Western countries have to realize gradually the reality and they try to also maybe find another, find out another uh, uh, balance between the so-called uh, uh, public opinion and the, the own policy.
That was Dr. Cui Hongjian, professor with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. This is Road Today. We'll be back within a minute. You've been listening to Road Today with me, Anna, in Beijing. China has warned that decoupling and de-risking would hinder the progress of developing countries. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin made the remarks in response to an International Monetary Fund statement. It predicts a potential 7% reduction in global GDP. This decline is anticipated due to the fragmentation of the global economy along geopolitical lines, primarily between the United States and China. One noted the essence of launching a trade war or decoupling and de-risking by certain countries is to politicize economic issues aiming to monopolize development advantages and hinder the progress of numerous emerging markets and developing countries. So to delve into this, let's bring in Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Researcher Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Zhou. Yes, thanks for having me. First of all, IMF Managing Director mentioned that geopolitical fragmentation would reduce global GDP by 7%. How do you view such an assessment? I think it uh, still depends on the the exchange of uh, defragmentation. If we are looking at the world from the globalization era mm-hmm. into a new era, maybe it's just like an egg. So it's uh, when there are some cracks at the beginning, it just uh, make two pieces. But when the the fragmentation is moving on, I mean there are more fragmentation and the business cannot continue. We know that in the globalization, the trade and investment are very important to connect the different countries and regions. So they benefit a lot by not doing everything. They just focus on what they are good at. But if these things cannot happen, they have to start from everything from the beginning. I, I mean, that is a real cost taking and the people may feel much more difficult. So I, I believe that in that situation, the, you know, the GDP will even going downward and more than 7%. Indeed, it's very concerning. And Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin warned that decoupling and de-risking would hinder the progress of developing countries especially. How might decoupling and de-risking contribute to such economic consequences? How has developing world been affected by such moves so far? Yeah, we know that these concepts are raised by the developed countries, especially United States and EU. They raised this concept to identify their priorities in the development. But I don't think that is a good idea because when they are doing that, they persuaded many companies to acting like to plus, you know, uh, to choose one more place for the operation and investment. And that is a really big shock on their own ideas of the businesses. As for the market, you know, the opinion, they should try to choose the best place to invest and making the connections between different countries as lower cost as possible. Mm -hmm. But now they have to do something to choose, you know, certain places to invest, like some of the companies went back to United States to invest there, but they don't have enough people who are capable of doing that. They have much higher cost of doing that. And this kind of uh, things has uh, impact a lot on the developing countries because many developing countries are dependent on the exports. And some of them are, uh, are depending on the import of the materials or equipment from the developed countries. So they have to think about what they can do. They have to try to rebalance in such a situation, which is not good for them. Then Dr. Zhou, Wang Wenbin also mentioned the overstretching of the concept of national security and argues that launching a trade war, decoupling and de-risking are economic tools attempting to monopolize development advantages by certain developed countries. Do you share the same stance? What's your thought on the politicization of the trade in recent years? Yeah, we know that national security has become a very hot topic, and Trump used this several times on every countries. And Biden also used this and even expanded this range to a much wider 
they have uh, raised a concept of a small yard and high fence, which mm. is a very dangerous thing, not only to force the companies in the United States to choose which way they should stand for, but also force the alliance like the you know Japan or other countries to act in the similar things like United States, which is not very good things for those companies and those countries also. So I would say that the national security is a, you know, a right thing that every country should Giving, be giving the right to, but if it's expanded too much, it will distort the, the normal trade and make the expectation of the market in even a dangerous, more dangerous position, which is not good for, you know, in such a time when we are facing so many challenges from the geopolitics for, and also the uncertainty after the COVID. So we, we should do trying to do something different, I think. Then in light of what has been discussed, what's China's overall stance on global economic issues and how does he aim to contribute to a more inclusive and cooperative international economic environment? China has uh, sticked to our promises when we joined WTO. Even before that, we, we believe that all the countries should be respected with the same or equal position. And we stick to the principles of WTO for the transparency, for the national treatment, and also you know, the most favored nation. Those principles are what we are doing in the past uh, and what we are now doing, I mean, right now. So I think that is a concept that we are raised the, the community of the, the earth and we should try to respect the other countries. So that is uh, from the concept. But in the real economy, you know, China is a very important manufacturing country in the world. We provide so many things to other countries, including the intermediate products and the materials to other countries. And we are still trying to become even more important in the consumption. So we are importing so many things from other countries. So I think that for China, we are very important position in connecting a lot of different countries to share with them about the opportunities for development. We observe a gradual divergence in the perspectives of developed and developing countries regarding international trade and cooperation. How do you interpret these two trends and what tangible impacts do you foresee for the year 2024? Maybe in the past, some of the developing countries believe what the developed country has raised our concept that we they are equally trading each others. But now they are looking at these are not a realist realistic, um, you know, the situation that they were they are facing. So actually, many developing countries are coordinating and cooperating or, you know, uh, you know, they are doing business with others because they have the similar ideas of development. So they share the same understanding about the future. As for the other side, I, I would say that developed countries are also trying to act uh, similar, which is not a good thing because the world is only one. We only have a one Earth. As for the year of 2024, I, I would say that there may be more uh, change, uh, like for the elections in many mm. countries and the regions, and that is a definitely not a good thing. But if we can grasp that opportunity, I still believe that the cooperation will still be possible for many countries. We share the same interest of development, not only about the status or stages of development, like developing countries and developed countries. We can do a lot of more things by innovative ways, like using the technology and the same concepts to dealing with the challenges in the coming year. Thanks, Dr. Joe, for your insightful analysis. That's Dr. Joe Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. You're listening to Road Today. Stay with us. China's tech giant Huawei emerges from the shadows of U.S. oppression only to face a new challenge. A bunch of former employees of Huawei's chip arm are causing ripples in the tech world. Arrests have been made with charges of key chip tech theft from Huawei. How significant is this blow, and could it be a major setback hindering Huawei's comeback? Find out more about the latest twist in the tech saga on this week's Chat Lounge, anywhere you get your podcasts, and on CGTN Radio. This is Road Today. 
China will, for the first time, coordinate efforts to conduct an input-output survey as the country launches its fifth national economic census. China's national economic census takes place every five years, aims to obtain accurate statistics to improve macroeconomic governance and to formulate medium and long-term development plans. In the coming four months, over two million enumerators will enter businesses and communities. To collect and register economic data, they will comprehensively examine the development status, layout, and efficiency of China's secondary and tertiary industries. So, for more on this, my colleague Xu Yawen talked with Professor Liu Baocheng, director of the Center for International Business Ethics at University of International Business and Economics. Professor Liu, the National Economic Census occurs every five years. So, how significant is conducting this census, and what specific impact will it have on enterprises? The national census is a modern way of、uh, getting information over the demographic condition and also demographic development.、Uh, since 1933, China altogether conducted seven rounds of、uh, national census that helps the Chinese、uh, key decision makers in mapping out. Uh, the Chinese uh, uh, demographic development in mapping out Chinese economic construction and、uh, deal with、uh, more of the social、uh, issues like mobility, how they can really provide education, etc., etc. So for companies, data is always the basis for any rational decision making. So with all the data, for example, on the supply of、uh, labor force. On the supply of、uh, the talent pool, they can have a better understanding and where and how they can really recruit the right people to serve the company's operation. And then they need also information with regard to the market. Some are making baby formulas. They need to know how many babies are there available and how many babies are expected to be produced for next year and some years to come. They also need the competitive information. For example, how many companies are doing the same type of product? Whether they are my competitors, whether they are my collaborators, and、uh, how distribution can be handled to different regions with different、uh, level of population and with different level of education, different buying power, etc., etc. So companies really benefit a great deal. Out of all the new data and more、uh, accurate and precise data, to be able to help them to make sound decisions. Well, we do notice there are some changes, new changes this year compared to the previous four times. For example, we have heard that this time it includes the three new economies, such as platform economy and digital economy. So, could you elaborate more on this part? Well. If we look at the past seven rounds, we always notice there are some、uh, new additions in those、uh, items for census because the national census is really a great sensor of、uh, what is really there to add on in the previous one. Now, with the addition of the three dimensions,、uh, the census is there to point out what is really the new development. And what is really the new frontier for all the、uh, labor force, for all the companies, and for、uh, many other decision makers to look at, so that、uh, they can really be able to shift more of their operational focus onto these、uh, new areas. For example, in terms of the platform technology or high tech, the clusters, etc., that gives a better picture. To those、uh, companies or entrepreneurship, who are able to make a more precise decision based on such sort of data, that also points that、uh, this is really the direction that、uh, the government is there to encourage by、uh, looking at the Chinese、uh, new development landscape. For example, where are those free ports? Where are those high tech zones? And where are those logistic hubs? So all of this really helps. A great deal. Another highlight of this year's census is that for the first time, it will carry out an input and output survey. 
So what's the purpose of adding this survey and how it will enhance our understanding of China's economic status? Well, as the leader for this uh, new census, uh, Mr. Ding Xiaojiang, who pointed out the truth is the key for statistics. So accuracy, reliability, and also currency is really the vital quality of uh, such sort of census. So by having all these uh, inputs and exports, it does mean that uh, we need to further mobilize resources to enhance the accuracy and reliability and also currency of such sort of data. Then by more of the survey, based on those census, it is really there to serve as a double check for the quality of such sort of data because China is so diverse and people are moving around. Uh, with massive scale, so there could be some sort of、uh, blind spots that can be covered actually by double check of the survey to be followed, and then that can also help to correct some of the、uh, data biases, and then this will be able to ensure that、uh, we have all the right data and with more of the currency to help the key decision, and plus that.、Uh, Because China is also in a critical juncture for transformation,、uh, it's not only demographic、uh, changes, but also economic changes and social changes. And when the government is making, for example, new decisions on social welfare, on providing economy housing, they need to know exactly、uh, what are those people who are really in bad need of such sort of、uh, government support. So you know, by double check. Uh, the quality of such a data, we are able to make more quality decisions. And lastly, Professor Liu, how can China better utilize the census result to enhance microeconomic governance and formulate accurate medium and long-term development plans? Well, the government will have, have to ensure that they provide enough protection for those privacy of those individuals and companies. But、uh, on the other hand, they need to make The economic results are all the data to be available for every stakeholder to reuse of that, and so therefore publicity is a key for for such a sort of service because the national census is really the right type of public goods that is really there to cater to those、uh, people who really、uh, rely on the, such sort of data. And the other is that、uh, because China is also on the Highlight for the、uh, global attention. So to share with、uh, global institutions, UN organizations, so that、uh, they can really have a better picture of、uh, what is going on in China and how they can really interact with China. And that's also very important. And then to educate people as how they can really take advantage of such sort of data by making personal decisions by making. Uh, you know, corporate decisions or career plans, and that also help a great deal. For example, you know how you can really let the young graduates from colleges to know, okay,、uh, you know, this is the right information, and where do you need to look for the right job that fits your 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 knowledge base, that fits your future career. So all of this really requires the government to to promote, educate, and share. Of such sort of information, so that、uh, you know, all the participants can really be there to take a better utility of such valuable data. That was Professor Liu Baocheng, director of the Center for International Business Ethics at University of International Business and Economics. This is real today. Stay with us. You've been listening to Road Today. South Korea has experienced a significant decline in newborns, hitting an all-time low in 2023. Authority figures show a notable drop compared to previous years, with December recording less than 17,000, the lowest monthly births ever since data collection began. The country predicts a continued decrease in the number of babies expected per woman throughout 2025. 
So for more on this, my colleague Liu Kun earlier talked with Hanhua specialist on demography and board member of China Forum. Thank you for talking to me.、Uh, first up,、uh, help us understand more about the background in the drop of new births in South Korea. Okay, in my opinion, it stems from multiple reasons, such as the high cost associated with raising children, also the education costs. And also a competitive work culture, and a lack of robust family support systems. I think additionally, housing expenses and limited childcare options also contribute to the declining birth rate in South Korea, in particular. There's some analysis online saying that、uh, there's a mindset among、uh, young people in South Korea、uh, to choose to not get into marriage. What are the considerations in your observation? Well, I think they have they have many concerns because of the societal change and the, the societal the the personal you know、uh, emotion shift towards prioritizing career development and education over starting a family. So I think this is the fundamental reason、um, which leads to the drop in new birth rates in the in South Korea. And also in some other East Asia countries, so this kind of、mm, trend will lead to a long-term decline in the birth rate, and also will lead to many significant changes in the society as well.、Mm. Well, talking about that,、uh, what does the drop of new birth mean for the South Korea economy? It will mean a lot of challenges.、Uh, for example, it can the, the shrinking workforce. Can strain productivity and impact economic growth significantly. And in the longer term, an aging population increases pressure on healthcare and also the social welfare system, and will lead potentially to increased the government spending and also reduced a consumer demand. Well, in your observation, is the South Korean government doing enough to address、uh, this decline in newborns as well as the rise of aging population? Well, to be frank with you, I don't think、um, they're doing,、uh, you know, right or wrong. But、uh, given the numbers, given the figures, I think、uh, there are certainly a lot of potential to improve this kind of situation. I think they have. They they have done something like they have they have implemented implemented several measures to address the declining birth rate, which includes、uh, the financial incentives for families, or increase the、uh, parental leave, the holidays,、mm-hmm. and also some initiatives to improve the, a work life balance. However, we can't see effectively about these measures in reversing the whole trend. The whole trend is still under scrutiny, so there must be ongoing discussions and also the practices or adjustments to these policies. Well, as you earlier already hinted, South Korea might not be unique in facing these、uh, demographic challenges:、um, the decrease in fertility rate、uh, and the increase of、uh, aging population. Japan and China are among other Asian countries who are facing similar problems. So, how would you explain this trend in Asia, this change in the demography, and what's the main background of it?、Um, well, I think. Uh, you know, as we both agreed, that these kind of dem- democratic demographic challenges faced not only by South Korea but also significant challenges faced by Japan and China as well, all not only East Asian countries but many Asian countries as well. So these are the commonalities we share, and、uh, these are the situation stemming from several reasons. Such as the rapid urbanization, China has witnessed the, the fastest、uh, urbanization during the past several decades, and also these kind of urbanization will bring the change in the societal values, which will increase the values and increase the pursuits for the education and for the career development. These kind of pursuits or new goals will also increase the cost. Of living in the cities, and all these factors composing together will contribute 
to a delaying marriage date, marriage age,、mm. and also the delaying of being starting a family, being parents, and will ultimately lead to the declining of birth rates and also the aging population in the longer run. And these kind of pressures, if we do not address this at this moment, we will have more challenges down the road. Well, the Chinese government has been actively、uh, adjusting its、uh, population policy in recent years to address these challenges.、Uh, I mean, what's your observation of that, and how would you comment, you know, on the efficiency of these policies? Yeah, we all witness the China's government increased and implemented policies to address the demographic issues, such as the relaxation of the one-child policy to a two-child policy. And further, back in 2017, I remember, and further to allow couples to have even three children. But I think the major issue they want to tackle is to have the young couples to start a family,、mm. to have the very first child in the very beginning, to start a family, to have this awareness. And these policies are also aiming to counter the aging population. Problem、mm. and also to boost the birth rates overall,、mm. and these are some other additional efforts by the Chinese government or by either the provincial by the central government or the, by the provincial governments. Different provinces have several different policies, but overall, these efforts include to improve the child care services and to give mothers or parents more leave days, also to encourage. Uh, families to be given more、uh, more incentive, in, even including the cash rebatement to give them the incentive to give them to encourage them to have more children. However, in my opinion, these policies need take time might take time、mm. to reflect this kind of you know change due to various societal and economic factors influencing. The family planning decision. Well, specifically,、uh, how do you see the progress China's been making、uh, in terms of providing these、um, childcare, especially early childhood childcare for young、mm-hmm. families?、Uh, for example, the kind of、uh, daycare facilities for young、mm-hmm. families. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a good question、mm-hmm. because it's not the、mm, the policy from top on down, but it needs bottom up policies as well,、mm-hmm. especially for this. Early childcare services. It needs definitely a joint effort, not only from the government, but also from the NGOs, but from the working units that young couples are working, and also from some some social services departments. So it needs a collective effort, and each unit needs to contribute its expertise, its practices, or its own resources to help establish this kind of childcare services, and then. To make the young couples feel encouraged that their babies can be taken good care of, not only by themselves, by the young parents, but also by the society, so that they can be encouraged to have more children. So it's a phased-in progress, but from the very beginning, it needs a joint effort from all the players in this system. That was Han Hua, specialist on demography and board member of China Forum. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.